You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bloom in Tech. I'm your host, David Bloom, and we are once again mining the rubble of the collision of media, technology, and entertainment for a few golden nuggets of wisdom that can help us find our way through these troubled times. So glad you could join me again. I have been spending a lot of time lately thinking about the metaverse. It seems like in recent weeks I've talked time after time after time with people who are ardently pursuing the implications of the concept of the metaverse uh, as creators, entrepreneurs, investors, and consumers. The ideas come up repeatedly during a string of interviews, Zoom rooms, and webinars that I either participate in or moderate with people on three continents who work in fields including art, media, games, investing, music, design, marketing, and fashion. At the uh, back end of this of today's conversation, I'll play back the uh, interview I did on Let's Do Lunch, uh, a daily online show hosted by the folks at Digital Media Wire with Peter Levin, who is now with Griffin Gaming Partners, but formerly was head of interactive at Lionsgate and Legendary Entertainment and done a lot of other stuff. And he has been focused on the metaverse as part of what he's doing in part so much that he was an early investor in a company that just got sold to League of Legends, which is owned by Tencent, one of the biggest uh, game companies, one of the biggest game investors in the world. Anyway, we'll get to that a little bit later. The idea of the metaverse itself has been around for quite a while. I'll loosely define it as a widely or universally accessible collection of online worlds and experiences that seamlessly integrate our work, play, communication, and whatever else it is that we do when we're online, and to do it in a visually immersive way. Think of it as virtual reality, but one where people can traverse many different experiences, design their own look, and even create their own unique spaces. The seminal texts helping us imagine and decipher what a metaverse might look like, speaking them into some kind of future possible, can be found in William Gibson's early 1980s works, like his Hugo and Nebula-winning debut novel, Neuromancer, Neil Stevenson's 1992 Snow Crash, and most recently, Ernest Cline's Ready Player One. That latter book, a 2011 bestseller, went on to become a hugely hyped 2018 Steven Spielberg movie about this time last year or two years ago. It came out at South by Southwest, and they had a crazy experiential marketing experience where they tried to mimic the stacks of mobile homes and stuff that are, that are talked about in the show and in the book. Uh, it went on, despite grossing $582 million worldwide in theaters and grabbing an Oscar nomination, among other awards, it somehow seemed to still slightly underachieve. I think that's probably because the expectations two years ago for what that might do to help boost the virtual reality business, which had uh, was still coasting on some uh, hype and uh, overly optimistic investment, they were hoping it would kick it into the stratosphere didn't quite get there, but I think uh, VR is coming along. More importantly, VR and some of the other experiences we have out there are continuing to merge and smear a little bit. Recently, the metaverse is in the zeitgeist more than ever, most notably thanks to Fortnite, the Battle Royale video game comes social media platform from Epic Games. It first made a metaverse-ish, metaverse-ish splash 15 months ago, 
with a 10-minute concert by electronic music star Marshmello. More than 10 million people showed up to watch that concert before going back to the building, shooting, and blowing things up that characterizes the usual Fortnite experience. Take it from me, uh, I was moderating a couple of conversations, a couple of panels in the weeks right after that uh, concert, and it was all most people want to talk about in terms of the marketing opportunities and the implications. In the year plus since, Fortnite has done brand deals with lots of heavy hitters such as the NFL, Lionsgate, and Marvel to create in-game cosmetic skins and other game assets for purchase by players. It's become a billion-dollar business for Epic, which, by the way, is 40% owned by Tencent, and a major marketing outlet for many brands. This past month, Epic took the Marshmallow concert idea to a new level, first with a string of visually ravishing performances by hip-hop superstar Travis Scott for his new single, Astronomical. Those concerts attracted 12.3 million viewers and were followed a week later by performances from Diplo, another big electronic musician who I quite like. Then the company launched Party Royale, a mode it called a, quote, new experimental and evolving space, unquote, on a separate island within the game map. Shooting and building aren't allowed, but plenty of new activities are, including regular concerts such as uh, last weekend's Steve Aoki and Dead Mouse and Dylan Francis' performances. The island also features boat racing, aerial obstacle courses, and a company store. I suspect this will get built out even more as time goes on. It's the first semi-permanent manifestation of Epic CEO Tim Sweeney's metaverse building ambitions, which he's talked about quite a bit over the last few years. Asked back in December if Fortnite itself was a game or a platform, Sweeney called Fortnite a game, but then said, quote, please ask me that question again in 12 months, unquote. Platforms mean something much more ambitious in tech land than just a mere game, even one that now has 350 million registered users. And Sweeney has talked so explicitly about ultimately transforming Fortnite into something closer to the chaotically cool pop culture maelstrom described in Ready Player One. With the backing of Tencent, he's headed in the right direction. But Sweeney, Epic, and Fortnite aren't the only ones metabolizing metaverse-style ambitions, unleashing creators to build what they will, and even make money from it. In 2014, Microsoft spent $2.5 billion to buy Mojang, the company behind Minecraft, which just had its own big concert within its operations, uh, sponsored by some music guys. So that was a pretty interesting little experiment as well. Roblox... R-O-B-L-O-X, allows creators to make their own games atop its platform. And its executives say a handful of as many thousands of makers are receiving million-dollar checks every month for the traffic that goes through their games. Nintendo's latest version of Animal Crossing, a franchise that's been around for a good 15 years, has been one of the hits of the pandemic. Another venerable franchise, EA's The Sims, is even being used to host business meetings and other conversations. Another of Tencent's investments, the wholly-owned Riot Games, may be best known for industry heavyweight League of Legends, but Riot also just acquired Hypixel Studios, which has an upcoming title called Hytale, H-Y-T-A-L-E, with metaverse ambitions to rival Roblox and Minecraft. And that's where Peter Levin comes in. I talk with Peter of Griffin Gaming Partners uh, as part of the uh, Let's Do Lunch conversation, and we, we got into some of what Hytale's about and the, his broader interest in metaverse-style experiences. The Hightail guys have a lot of experience in dealing with this sort of world. They ran the biggest server community on Minecraft for years, still do, and that informed the creation of an in-game movie theater where groups can jointly watch videos together 
as well as tools to make those videos along with community servers, mini games, modding, live scripting, and other functions that the creator community loves when they want to make their put their own stamp on a metaverse style or metaverse potential game. As Peter said, the holy grail is to get people on the platform to be able to create discrete, customized experiences for themselves and their community and to still engage in the larger product. And I think that's the promise of what companies like Hypixel have brought. Not incidentally, he was president of Lionsgate's interactive division when it joined with Fortnite to put assets last summer from shoot-'em-up sequel John Wick 3 into the game. That was another hot conversational topic, trust me. When I was doing panels last August and September, people referred to the John Wick 3 integration in quite admiring style. Peter told me it generated some 400 million hours of gameplay by Wick-wearing Fortnite players and no doubt contributed notably to the $326 million the film grossed worldwide in theaters back in those days when we actually went to them. It was a canny smearing of the boundaries between the fans of a game that involved a lot of shooting and expressing yourself with custom skins and gear, and of a movie that also involved a lot of shooting and featured some cool gear. The next step for all of this is tools and platforms that talk with each other and allow us to not only create customized experiences and virtual goods, but take them with us to other games and other experiences. We're a ways off from that place, but there's no doubt that months of pandemic-driven lockdown have forced us to spend way more time in digital spaces and to realize a couple of important things. One, the spaces we have are often quite engaging, but also have some significant limits. Very little of what they enable can go anywhere else. And I think we're seeing this more and more and noticing it more and more because we're all locked up and we're on Zoom and we're on other spaces where we both are finding some cool things And the real limits of it and our desire for more is, I think, sharper because of this pandemic's, uh, this pandemic-forced lockdown. Second of all, we want to be able to do more and to move among different experiences without a lot of barriers. In the streaming world, this is something that Netflix does really well, at least in terms of easy access to its huge range of programming. You can find all kinds of stuff with a search, and they surface all kinds of stuff, however well you can complain, but they do it as well or better than anybody else out there. And they have lots to, lots to surface, so it's quite a challenge, and we'll see how other people keep up. Now, the third thing, I think, in these uncertain and socially distanced times is we want more ways to express our creativity, our individuality, and our cultural interests and allegiances wherever we go. Our IRL selves may be stuck wearing sweatpants or pajamas for too much of the day and night, but at least let us look just the way we want to look when we hop online to connect with others. It's difficult to know when we'll move past the pandemic and its social, economic, and other consequences. And it's clear we still have years of work ahead technologically to realize anything close to what Spielberg conjured for the cinematic vision in Ready Player One. But of the many unexpected impacts of this extraordinary moment, Surely one will be that we're all getting increasingly ready to be player one. So stick around. I'll be talking with Peter Levin about this and a lot of other stuff. Peter has his hands in a lot of interesting things, and he's a fascinating guy. We'll be right back.
Hey, everybody. Uh, delighted to be here with the esteemed Peter Levin of uh, now of Griffin Gaming Partners. He's got a long and checkered history at the intersection of gaming and traditional entertainment. He headed interactive operations at places like Legendary and Lionsgate, and he was uh, founder of uh, Nerdist. So his nerd cred is uh, wholly intact. And we're going to talk a little bit about his newest venture, which is really new. It's uh, not even got a fund to close, so he can't tell us how big it is. But he can talk about some of what uh, what Griffin Gaming Partners is doing and a little bit about um, where he thinks the industry is going. Peter, welcome. So glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, hello, everybody. So uh, just to start, let's uh, give people a real quick idea about what what you're doing with Griffin Gaming Partners, what you guys are hoping to get into, and the directions you want to focus on in terms of investments and opportunities. Sure. Uh, we are an investment vehicle uh, discreetly focused on the entire gaming landscape. So that's soup to nuts, infrastructure platform, devs, pubs, studios. Uh, it's a partnership that has focused on gaming uh, and interactive entertainment for our entire careers, 20 plus years. Um, you know, myself with more of a focus as an entrepreneur, an operator, and an investor. For two decades, um, my partner, Phil Sanderson, probably the most active uh, VC uh, from the Valley in the game space for the past uh, 20 years. Um, and then Nick Tuasto and Lion Tree, um, who Nick brings just incredible background on the advisory side of you know, architecting and helping Tencent uh, acquire Supercell, largest transaction ever in gaming. I sold um, Kabam's assets to Korea-based Netmarble. Um, and then Lion Tree again, right at this intersection of, of media and gaming. Um, couldn't ask for, for a better partnership in this particular moment in time in particular. Great. Uh, just another reminder to folks, uh, just a reminder to, if you have a question, we have a Q&A section, uh, so you can pop that up and throw those over there so it's easier for me to keep track. I am not like those gifted Twitch commentators who can uh, see the, uh, the the conversation in the chat room zoom by at a thousand miles an hour and pluck out the three most salient features while also playing Warzone um, or in my case Destiny or whatever. But uh, um, And also make sure that you're uh, sending chat to all panelists and attendees, not just to all panelists because uh, it won't be nearly as fun to just talk to us. Um, Let's uh, start. One of the things I want to get into, uh, you may notice my rather um, busy background here. It is, uh, I think, particularly on point this week because uh, Travis Scott, the hip hop star, is debuting his new single, Astronomical, with a series of concert performances in Fortnite. And this is one of the assets that they released a few days ago. Um, it's a Zoom background, which is really smart. It has Fortnite and Cactus Jack, which is uh, Travis Scott's uh, own record label in, in the upper right-hand corner, and uh, or left-hand if you're looking at this, and Astronomical, the name of the song that he will be debuting. And uh, Peter, talk about this and the opportunity that this represents for uh, music artists and others. You also, when you were at Lionsgate, did the John Wick 3 integration in um, Fortnite that I think was really brilliant. And lots of people have talked about it at every conference I was at. So talk about these two things and this opportunity for brands and uh, companies to connect with a gaming audience and where you see that all headed. Sure. I mean, it's nothing short of brilliant what, what Travis and, and the folks at Epic have done yet again 
you know, tapping into the zeitgeist, this particular moment. Um, when, when you think about the fact that the most attractive and the most elusive demographics in the world are now living in these games metaverses. Um, so it's an extremely efficient and contextual way to reach that audience. And so um, I can tell you, when we introduced John Wick into Fortnite, that first week alone, this is prior to John Wick 3 coming out, and this was a commercial, not a promotional relationship, mind you. It was north of 400 million hours of gameplay. So if you think about raising wow. the brand equity of John Wick going into a release weekend, you simply couldn't afford as a, as a, you know, as a studio the size of Lionsgate to buy that kind of marketing. Right. And yeah, so, just to clarify, so when we say 400 million hours, which is uh, even more time than I, I play, uh, much of my wife's chagrin, uh, that 400 million hours is people playing with a John Wick uh, themed skin or weapon or whatever uh, asset it is, stuff to help people think about, oh, the game. They were, they were actually doing stuff in the 400 million hours worth of gaming, right? Is that, I just want to make sure that's right. what our... That's right. And it's also what, you know, what they did with Marshmallow, again, kind of kicked this off. But it's, what's so brilliant about it is um, they're not over the top with their marketing and messaging around these types of activations. They're very subtle. It's very nuanced. With John Wick, for example, you know, the, the John Wick house and the John Wick car just appeared in the game out of nowhere. Right. And, you know, Reddit went absolutely bananas for it. So when you think about what they're doing with Travis, you've got kids with more time than they've ever had that are living on these platforms um, that are going to be able to enjoy Travis Scott experiences in a variety of different time zones and geographies, as, as you discussed. They're buying the skin, right? They're emoting with the skin. They're emoting with their friends. You know, there's the Zoom backdrop for the demographic that's just a step up. And it's folks like us that are taking the first five or 10 minutes of a webinar such as this talking about it. Right. And that's right. just a win on so many different indexes, you know, good right. for them. And I think the thing that, that Epic and, and what they've done with Fortnite and they've done it so well, when you look at how they activated at E3 a couple of years ago at the Zenith of, of Fortnite, they've kept the fun, right. You know, they right. realize it's not the most complicated battle Royale game mechanic out there by a lot. Right, right. I but, mean, there's plenty that have come on that have just said, oh, if they can do it, we can do it, and we can do it better. And others might have done it better. I mean, Apex is great for what it did. Uh, and now we've got Warzone, and I know that you may have lost a few hours of your life to Warzone. Uh, but but they, they're still rolling, right? they still got 250 million users, right? It's, it's amazing. And again, I think this particular moment in time is brought back. There's a nostalgic component to it. There's also... You know, they were the first to truly cross-platform coupled to aggressive social elements, right? And those right. are the things right. that people want more than anything in gaming these days. I want to be ambulatory with my game's experience. So I want to be able to play it on my Switch. I want to be able to play it on my phone or my tablet. I want to be able to play it on my console or my PC. And I want to talk to my friends while I do it. I want to talk smack. Sure. I want to invite people in. You know, I can tell you as someone who's paid acute attention to um, the numbers of gamers globally now, the number has now exceeded 3 billion. Um, but there are certain pockets, certain demographics that, you know, have been kind of the, the holy grail. You know, uh, teenage girls, for example, what Fortnite was able to do was open up the TAM for 14-year-old girls, gave them a soft landing into mid-core games because of the social component to it. There's a role right. for them to play right. within that game. And that offers opportunity for all types of publishers out there to now reach that audience who is hooked. 
you know, they figured out this is an easy way into the conversation. Uh, there must be more product out there for me and they're discovering more product. Well, and I think that that's really crucial because, you know, you talk about uh, giving that whole demographic of, of young women a way in, right? So all of a sudden uh, they they can take advantage of it because it has a an accessible social component. To me, that was the secret weapon. It was free, so that you got rid of that barrier. It was available on every platform you could imagine you could play games on just about. So you got rid of that that barrier. And then on top of that, you could talk across platforms to everybody else. And I think to me, that's the future of where these game things go. It can be really compelling, but there are... Uh, lots of ways to skin this cat. So uh, let's talk a little bit. You just had a really good exit uh, with a company you were personally invested in called Hypixel. Uh, and uh, talk about what that does and where that fits into this um, uh, metaverse, uh, th these games that want to get into metaverses, that want to be accessible. Talk about about what Hypixel's about. Sure. And I had background envy, so I threw up our, our Santa Monica Griffin offices. <laughs> Great. Um, your background is so badass. Um, yeah, I was very fortunate to um, to have been a part of of the High Pixel investment opportunity. Riot led the round. Um, some great individuals in there, you know, Dennis Fong, Anthony Borquez. Um, but it was very easy to see right off the bat when you met with Noxie and the team at High Pixel that these guys were doing something much different, and they had an early appreciation for. The metaverse and, and what that could mean um, leveling up uh, with respect to the existing products in the marketplace. So, you know, Hypixel's um, history of, of managing the largest uh, Minecraft server, you know, in the world gave them this incredible insight and the ability to scrape data uh, from tens of millions of players over the years and led them to better understand what they most appreciate about the platform, where they would like to level up and see innovation on the platform. So when you look at the Hightail trailer on YouTube, I think it's amongst, if not the most watched game trailer ever on YouTube. It's up there for Hightail. Um, and you, you get through the trailer and, and you, they start to lay out for you some of the customization tools that will allow for you to create your own universe within the metaverse, right? So the, the, again, the, 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 the holy grail is to get people on platform, be able to create discrete, customized experiences for themselves and their cohort for their community and still engage in the larger product. And I think that's that's the promise of what companies like Hypixel brought to the conversation. So, you know, brilliantly, Riot was ahead of the curve. They saw the talent, you know, they ended up scooping up um, up the business, which is gonna be a perfect complement to what they're already doing, you know, with Valorant coming out um, later this summer, uh, which is a step in a different direction. And this is a step in a wholly different direction and then to be able to port these audiences, you know, from one vehicle to the next and keep them within this this common ecosystem. Yeah, it'll be really fascinating to see how they play out. I mean, um, Riot spent a decade uh, and doing very, very well with just a single game and kept talking about, oh, we've got other stuff coming, we've got other stuff coming. And now it looks like they actually have other stuff coming. So Valorant has already got a lot of a lot of buzz. Um but you're talking about a really interesting thing about keeping all of those titles within the same sort of universe. And that's never really been something that publishers have done. It seems to me like that's kind of a miss. There's an opportunity to have your 
assets be portable across those, you know, to make the, the, the membrane permeable between the worlds. This again becomes a metaverse kind of thing and an opportunity. Um, let's, let's pivot a little bit though. I want to talk about a different kind of metaverse or a meta sports verse. Uh, we've seen a, an explosion in the absence of traditional sports, of traditional sports getting their athletes to play the video games in tournaments of their of their sports. And uh, I think this week it was uh, FIFA doing 2020, or FIFA 2020 and the FIFA um, uh, soccer uh, body, uh, English Premier League. Some of those guys are doing the sports stuff. We've had golf with Top Golf. We've had NASCAR and short track racing with NBC Sports. The NBA, the University of Kentucky is doing some stuff with, I think, Gen G. Um, talk a little bit about um, what you think of that as an opportunity for the leagues and what you think of that as an opportunity for tradition or for esports? Um, does it help esports? Does it uh, bring that to a broader audience that has always sort of dismissed it? I mean, what, what's the, what's your idea of how this shakes out and for how long will we have this around? Yeah, I think it's, it's something we talk about a lot, which is, you know, part of what's happening here is, um, so many of, uh, of the places that you read about what's happening in terms of the traction of gaming, um, these have been very antiseptically presented facts over the last couple of years. Gaming is three times larger than film and five times larger than TV and larger than film and TV and publishing and music combined. That's great, but people hear that and it feels like it's down the road um, in the future. I think what's happened now, um, it's been laid bare for the, the global media consuming constituency. They now are holed up in their homes with their spouses or their daughters or their sons or their nieces and nephews, and they're experiencing firsthand that this demographic is either gaming or they're watching other people play games. And right. so as it bleeds out from there, you now have a demographic that they're starving for, to your point, golf content. So NBC Sports Network was broadcasting some of the World Golf Tour you know, virtual golf content um, and uh, millions of folks. I know that their numbers are up 150%, you know, uh, over where they were prior to um, COVID-19 being, you know, thrust upon us. When you look at the virtual car racing, the Formula One races, you know, for example, my neighbor up the street, you know, Townsend Bell uh, does, he's a, you know, uh, Le Mans champion and, and uh, uh, an accomplished race car driver. He's also a broadcaster. They had to come and install a rig a virtual rig in his home so he could get the virtual right. experience. I just want to know, Peter, when he drives down the street, does he speed? Like he just, our, our kids what? play baseball together and like following him home, like following him to a restaurant after a baseball tournament to go yeah. uh, in a beer, <laughs> not fun. Uh, not fun at all. But like horse racing, for example, right? The right. UK threw that, that horse race a couple weeks ago, 4.3 million people tuned into it. Right. So think to your... To your point and your query, um, it it is so not niche, right? I think esports competitive gaming got painted as this niche thing. It's not niche when the numbers for the past several years have been larger than the NBA Finals, the, the, right. the Legends Championship, one match than the finals combined, the viewership. Right. right. But I think the the in terms of the public's orientation towards it now. It's, they're just looking at it through a much, much different lens because, like I said, it's been laid bare in their home environments. 
Yeah, I, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I had trying to explain to people what esports was, you know, people who were sports fans. And they go, so wait a minute. So they just, people sit there and watch people play games? It's like, yeah, it's sort of like people sitting there and watching somebody play a game of football on TV. It's almost, in fact, exactly the same. And they go, uh, and they didn't quite get it. And I think now they got a chance to get it a little bit. This, like a lot of things, is going to be an accelerant, I think, for trends that have been slowly unfolding and unpacking in many, many areas of our lives, this whole pandemic thing. Uh, well, I do you, want to add one thing, because I think yeah. one of the primary drivers, and it's the, you know, the often not talked about part of sport that is the economic driver, which is betting and gambling. Right, right. I wanted to get into that. So, yeah, please, please. Uh, the gambling, the, the, that horse race had to have gambling out the wazoo, right? 4.3 million people, they were all betting. Absolutely, right? And there's going to be so much of that in so many permutations around competitive gaming. And the difference being the the inventory is infinite. So right. it will end up right. being the largest category, you know, in online and virtual gambling and betting. And so whether that's, you know, in virtual currency or real currency, inevitably in the long term, it's going to win. And that's, you know, that you get a beer in any executive at the NFL, they're going to tell you, you know, it's fantasy football and betting that, you know, keeps the lights on. And, and that's going to be pervasive again in so many permutations within competitive gaming. Yeah. I, yeah and that's an interesting point about, uh, a wide open inventory because you know the nfl to some extent benefits because there's only well it'll be 17 games this year plus the playoffs uh assuming we have a season which is increasingly looking like a bit of a stretch uh so at this point um that the gambling can be a way to make money but can we when do you anticipate that that esports will be able to reclaim some other parts of its revenue streams of live events that actually have attendees and some of the merchandise that I'm sure is taking a hit. What's, what's your sense as a money guy uh, looking at this stuff? What's your sense of when they can reclaim those corners or, or are we ever going back? Yeah. I mean, I can't speak as much to traditional sport. Um, although, um, esports, you know, esports in particular. Yeah. I, I, get to that because there's so many folks from traditional sport that have invested in esports, which is where right. sure. I'm going. Um, I want to come back to that in a second, but I think relative to, to competitive gaming, it's so early. I mean, I, I liken it to, it's the second pitch of the first inning of a nine inning game, right? right. In particular in North America, it's not like, it's not like it is in, in Korea and parts of China, uh, down in Brazil. Um, and so I, I think there was a shiny toy, you know, in the, esports world last year and the year before, kind of like what VR was in the two to three years before that, which was, right. you know, the shiny toy, a lot of tourist capital, you know, right. adapted to both VR and into competitive gaming because they felt like I'm reading about it everywhere. You know, my kid's watching it constantly. This is a thing I need to be in. So let's find a way in. And I, I, I think the, the longer term or strategic thinking around it, for example, in Immortals, where I, you know, have the honor of serving as chairman, one of our major shareholders is AEG, one of the largest events companies, if not the largest events company in the world. Right. They run Staples uh, Center. They own the, the LA Kings hockey team. I think they own a tiny piece of the Lakers also as part the of the Galaxy and venues all over the world and, and teams yeah. all over the world. Right. But they came in and said, look, you know, it took us 20 plus years to make Major League Soccer make sense. And now these franchises are selling for north of half a billion dollars. 
uh, and they're profitable and they're viable and the ownership quality is on par with the best leagues in the world, it's going to take a long time for these esports franchises and platforms to make sense. And so I don't think, in particular, like for our fund, for example, we would not be looking at investing in a franchise per se. Um, some of the platform and infrastructure plays, absolutely, and we already have. Uh, that's not to say we don't believe in franchises. We very much do. It's just a different timeline. Uh, it's a different window. I mean, you've got uh, your fund has to has to disperse and return funds within a certain number of years, right? Isn't that? I mean, I I don't keep track of the SEC as closely, perhaps as I should, but but they have to. Uh, you have to bring the money in, invest a certain amount every year, and then also return funds at some point. Correct. It's correct. It, but even beyond the SEC regulations or the, the, the mandate or the remit you know, of, of the fund, just practically speaking, we just right. don't see the timelines uh, lining up. They don't map onto each other well relative to what we have established as our goals and ambitions for our own vehicle. That's not to say other vehicles don't have a different remit. Just for ourselves, it's, it's outside of, of our parameters. Plus, we have LPs that are our owners in, in multiple teams, so there's conflicts of interest, which made it even easier for us not to pursue it. Long-winded <laughs> way of saying, though, um, looking through the lens of the traditional tropes of the traditional sport can be dangerous. And so I think one of the things that competitive gaming has the advantage of is being it's a native mobile product, right? So, so much of what happened in the early days of competitive gaming already happened online. And so them gravitating back towards an online competitive environment, A, it's doable technologically. B, you're dealing with a cohort, again, that's native native digital. They're very comfortable watching, consuming um, this content on these right. platforms. Right. This then, is where they live. So it's like, oh, don't throw me in the briar patch, right? Right. And also, if you look at Twitch, it's got better CPMs and premium cable. So, you know, marketers are very comfortable living there and breathing there as well. So it already has kind of this insulated ecosystem in terms of merchandise, you know, you can buy whatever you want online, whether it's the virtual skins. Again, as someone who plays Call of Duty Warzone every single night with my team, we got our six W last night. Um, Woohoo! Woohoo! Yeah. This is the, this is the deal. That's a big deal. I, I love that you're doing team building because you know I, I we were chatting earlier today, and I was I was mentioning. Uh, that you do team building with your guys on in esports and 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 it makes a lot of sense because there's a thing to do together that does require teamwork there's a opportunity to talk about it as you're doing it uh not just about the game but other stuff but you build a relationship in a different way and it felt a little bit like what i was hearing from folks at the void the location-based entertainment uh company that's uh, got a an outlet in here in santa monica where i'm based um, you know, they said they have tech companies come in and do their their adventures and stuff. So, like, you're you're it's it's so much better than walking across hot coals, as far as I'm concerned. But this is like the new thing, right? You're going to be um, the future of not just entertainment, but the future of uh, organizational design. It seems like. Well, it, it's certainly been um, for so many folks in a very stressful moment in time. It's a way to recapture those lost casual social moments that you had during your day, whether it's walking into someone's office, stopping by, you know, in the kitchen, um, in our case, you know, playing Big Buck Hunter or Golden Tea or Terminator. Um, so to be able to, at the end of the day, cause it's difficult to do that on a Zoom call 
you know, everyone's kind of playing their role, you know, relative to your enterprise. Right. But at the end of the day, look, I can tell you of my Griffin team, I am by far the worst. So I know the role I have to play. So all of a sudden we're juxtaposed, right? You know, I'm the guy, you know, if there's an extra gas mask, I make sure that James or Anthony gets it because they're going to be more valuable in the final zone than I'm going to be. Right. And so I'll jump in front of a bullet, you know, in order to, you know, in order for us to get the win, because I'll take equal credit for it. I was there, but, you know, I'm being dragged along. And so the dynamic of kind of the managing director, senior partner, all of a sudden that gets juxtaposed. And that's really healthy as well. Yeah, that's interesting to think about, right? Be, um, it's sometimes difficult for the uh, the alpha guy to figure out he's not the alpha in this one and, and to, to think about the different role. But that's really it, it changes a lot of dynamics, and you can talk about a lot of stuff as you're going in a very different way. You're right. I mean, it it, it becomes a backdrop for a whole different sort of interaction. Uh, let's talk about the Immortals a little bit more because, uh, first of all, you do have AEG and some other big names involved as investors. I think the esports teams are doing really fascinating stuff. FaZe Clan just put out, speaking of crossovers, just put out jerseys yesterday with the NFL, uh, tied to the NFL, and the first drop that uh, – with that that league, I think, has been involved in. Uh, we certainly have seen lots of interesting stuff from a lot of other teams, and Immortals is is a big old team. They, they've got uh, – talk a little bit about what you're hoping to do with Immortals, where they're playing now, and where they're going. Sure. I really got to get you an Immortals jersey because I know you got a liquid jersey, and I know you got a phase jersey. And got a couple phase jerseys. I'm, I'm racking these things up, man. I got, oh, I got a 100 Thieves jersey, man. I'm rolling. I hey. got I'm a huge fan of, 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 of all of those guys, and it's a definitely a rising tide moment. Um, there, there's a few of our franchises, the ones that you ticked off, and I think Immortals is fortunate to be amongst them, that operates in the LA tier um, and consider ourselves much more than a franchise but a platform, right? So we went out and bought right. Gamers Club down in Brazil, which is the largest, ma largest matchmaking platform down in that market. Um, we have certain announcements coming out relative to um, – positions that we've taken and acquired in, in different businesses relative to the, the core business of, uh, of Immortals, extending our brand. Key to that is the major shareholder base that we've got. So we've got AEG, we've got Mike and Gregory Milken. Um, you know, Mike Milken is like Dr. Manhattan-sized brain compared to the rest of us, humanity. You know, Meg Whitman is a major shareholder. S Steve Kaplan, co-founder of Oak Tree, is a major shareholder. Also owns DC United and Meg owns the Cincinnati Major League Soccer franchise, I would add. So um, we definitely have the resources to play a very long game. Um, and I think that was always our goal. Um, you know, somebody said to me, it's actually a former executive at an MCN, who's like, you know, these esports these e franchises feel like the MCNs of today. I, again, never as a guy who ran Nerdist, I never believed in the MCN model, could never pencil out those numbers. You know, right, right. It was hard to make because they didn't own anything, right? They were just a go-between it, it was like a failed arbitrage model right uh, right it's like crazy it's like it's crazy. i they went and, and and you know we should look back with fondness for that moment of irrational exuberance but but this is different though because you're creating content you're creating merchandise you're creating business models that make sense at least they they generate some funds and some relationships that are not, that are that the, the organization owns that's right not just a Competition is 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 tribal, right? If you're going to put right. a backdrop on your Zoom or a jersey in your home or your office, you care. So does that have to be city-based? Not always, but is it fun when it is sometimes? Absolutely. 
Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. um, would it be great to have, you know, I've been fortunate to co-teach a class at USC in competitive gaming and uh, I've got a split home between UCLA and, and USC. Would it be great if UCLA and USC became the world renowned competitive, you know, university versus university competitive gaming platform? Hell yes. Like how great would that be? It's good enough in football. I mean, even though the teams have been down lately, uh, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm just, I'm just surprised that it's the Annenberg school. I used to teach uh, over at the film school and I was an executive over an administrator over at the business school. I'm just surprised it's the communication school where I have a lot of friends doing esports because it's like, why there? Why is it there? You know, I would say, cause I've, I've been, Talking to Danny um, and um, and the guys uh, over there and Jim, I don't want to go on a, a you know on a praise rant on USC, but what they have done for gaming, um, I mean, clearly they are right. you know the leader globally in terms of setting up a school for gaming that has produced some incredible talent, you know, including you know Brandon and Mark who founded Riot, but you know I, I honestly think it's a bleeding into these other schools because there's almost nowhere else to go with it. Right. Uh, right. That's true. And, and, and their, their program was already cross platform. Anyway, you did, you had the, the art school and the engineering school and the, the business school and all these guys kind of had some piece of it in one way or another already. Right. So I guess yeah, they've, they've definitely established the roadmap and the template for, I think both domestic and global universities to replicate and, you know, we've had a bunch of conversations around that, but that type of innovation, what they're doing there, you know, hopefully gets picked up at, at more and more universities because that's going to do nothing but create, you know, more innovation, more opportunities, quite frankly, for a vehicle like mine to invest in because it's going right. to more, more talent interested in it. They're going to be more attracted to this market. So we'll be proximate to them. While we're at it, it's about 1231. So we've got a few minutes left here. Let's put up, uh, if we could, Laura, the poll questions uh for the day some of these are inspired by our conversation so please take a minute to check these things off and we'll talk a little bit more about them when we're done in the meantime we've got a few questions from the audience we haven't uh, gotten into yet and we'll we'll talk about those so but well, i didn't I'm get to vote it said we're not allowed to vote no because you have already expressed your opinions and are shaping the outcome of the poll with your persuasive view of the universe so it's like it would be sort of stacking the deck and then I you a lot of animal crossing too for the record for the record and by the way to my mind that's probably the game and the company that's won this is a weird thing to say won the pandemic right i mean this is it's gotten as big out there in the zeitgeist as anything travis scott thing's gonna be huge but i mean okay so they sold 1.8 million 1.88 million physical copies um of the game in the opening three days, they more than 392,000 consoles were sold in Japan during the launch week, and they just put an additional 22 million into production. Look, Miyamoto to me, I mean, I've sent you that photo. Like, yeah, he's, he's a guy. God. He's the Walt Disney of gaming. So, if anyone's going to win, quote unquote, it should be them. Because they've got something that's not, as you call it, the mid-core. Uh, they, can, they can claim the mid-core, though. Nobody's going to confuse Animal Crossing with the mid-core or hardcore game space. Um, it is as sweet as can be, the new version. I remember when the original came out, and my kids at that point were probably 12 and 13 or 10 and 11, something like that. And, you know, wedging them off that long enough to take them back to their mothers was a bit of a challenge. So, you know, the DNA is there. You've got some nostalgia gaming and this crisis time for this new version. I mean, it just happened to come out when it came out. But, I mean, it was perfect for folks who wanted to 
use gaming as a something better than just watching Friends again, which apparently is going to be available in about a month from today on uh, HBO Max. Again, for you to binge if you still need to find out what those crazy kids in New York uh, are doing. The only note on Animal Crossing would be you got to get through that first four or five days because it's a grind. But then it, yeah. then it opens up. Like they definitely test you. They want to make sure that you're all in. Are you serious? Do you really love us? Well, yes. the first four or five days are an absolute grind. There's a lot of games like that. And I say that as a Destiny player myself. So, yeah, I know. so uh, Mark Patterson, who is in the uh, game space, uh, asks, with mobile gaming also gaining momentum and increasing the number of devices supporting esports, how are, should advertisers approach really the multitude of plat- platforms out there? And of course, mobile is where... Uh, half the revenues of this $140 billion industry are. Um, he's, he's asking which KPIs are of value also. So any thoughts on where advertisers should put their money? They're not going to be able to put them in some places. Those games aren't set up for it. But where should they be putting their money in the game space? Well, first of all, you know, mobile is a fantastic environment within which to reach women, right? So when you look at you know, 10 years ago when the games business was 90% male, 10% female, and now it's 55-45-ish, there's still a delta there to play with. And there's still an opportunity to reach, again, that incredibly powerful demographic who spends a tremendous amount of time and more money than males do on mobile. So if you're a marketer and you're trying to reach that audience, you need to figure that out. I think around competitive gaming, if you're you know, a brand or a marketer, you'd be absolutely out of your mind to touch anything on linear TV you know, these yeah. days. Right? Yeah, right. I mean, what's left of it? I mean, it's going to be pretty battered, I think, by the time we get done with all this. But you're right. So I think finding ways to work with, you know, the more viable platforms, the opportunities there to contextually bake your brand in, not just look like you're, you're buying eyeballs, but find a way to communicate, you know, with that audiences. And brands like Red Bull and Coca-Cola and P&G have been doing a good job, Unilever, kind of spending the cycles trying to figure that out um, much more aggressively than they migrated from linear platforms to, you know, digital online. I think they learned their lesson uh, that they're doing this, you know, much quicker. And I definitely think this has truncated that window just because every day they're waking up and reading about these these numbers. You can't, you can't argue with this data. Um, no. Just, this is such right. a data-driven industry. The KPIs are just right there in front of you. You know, the high-capacity networks are being stressed anywhere from 45 to 75% more than they ever have before because of gaming you know, Steam week after week is breaking, you know, its titles, um, you know, uh, you know its records. Uh, Discord, you know, is being stressed more than it ever has before. These are these are statistics. And if you even look at the market and the way the public markets are tra- treating, you know, some of, of these stocks, you know, Activision, EA and Take-Two relative to a lot of other folks out there, people are understanding what's happening. Uh, Angie Dalton from Signum Growth Capital says, uh, hi, Peter. Uh, hi, Angie. She, She says, you were dead right on VR when it hit the scene. Uh, You were talking about some of that tourism capital coming in and and, uh, learning the hard way that the market wasn't quite ready for broad growth, though lots of possibilities. I think it's it's matured substantially in the last uh, three years. But now she points out, I think this is dead on too, uh, we have Alex or Half-Life Alex, which is just a killer game by all accounts. And we have things like the Oculus Quest, which thankfully is both less expensive and isn't making people sick routinely. I think that's not just the equipment. It's also the way you produce the software on it. But do you think we've turned the corner in VR? Do you see any opportunities here? Or are you still in wait and see mode? 
Yeah, I took a lot of grief. I got to tell you, you know, I was probably the only guy who ran an interactive business at a studio who didn't invest in a VR production company and, you know, got a lot of grief. I know my partner, Phil, who would do panels would, would take a lot of flack too, because he also agreed with me. It was, it was lacking two things that are so fundamental to gaming, right? Which is social right. and repeatability. So there was right. a novelty to it. It was great to play once, but it was never like, oh, I got to get back to the mall and go do that again. To your point earlier about it being a great opportunity to have a you know team building moment with your team, that's fine because you do that maybe twice a year, right? But it lacked the repeatability and the social. Do I think we're we're probably not there yet on it, Alex? You know, was an incredible leap forward when you look at you know who's behind that title and you look at, at Valve and you look at Steam. They're just incredible innovators and they were really early on trying to figure this out. Even the early Dota 2 uh, demos that they did was probably, still probably the most beautiful thing I saw early yeah. on in VR. And they were very contemplative about maximizing the technology for what it was, but not making it so over the top that you got nauseous or you know, felt right. uncomfortable within right. the rig. Still think it's a ways off. It's not a, you know, the, the test I always gave when folks would ask me about it, in particular at a lunch or a dinner, I'd say, I'll tell you what, if in this restaurant, if there's a single human being who owns a VR rig that doesn't work for a VR company, I'll pick up a check for the entire restaurant. If not, you pick up a check for the entire restaurant. Are you willing to take that bet? And they would never say yes. And I'd say, okay, well then this, we're done talking about this, right? Because if it's not having that, whereas every single person in that restaurant had some kind of a game, something on their phone. Right, absolutely. Oh yeah, even if it's just Sudoku or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, words with friends, you know, chess words with, with friends, friends yeah. Candy Crush, Lily's yeah. Garden, whatever it may be. Yeah, that's true. Another question, uh, this guy, I, some guy I've never heard of named Ned Sherman asks, what do you think about networks like Venn, V-E-N-N? -N? I've never heard of Venn. I, I guess I have heard of Ned, but Venn is a new thing. It's like Ned is talking about one of his clients, I think. But what do you think yeah. about these guys? He just likes monosyllabic names. Um, yeah, well, David Bloom does too, so... <laughs> Well, you got David Bloom, you know. Believe me, I hold on to that second pair, that second syllable very tightly. So no Daves here. We want as many Vens in this world to prevail as possible because it means more opportunities, more platforms, more environments for more games content, right? So um, if you're trying to level up, you know, what is currently being offered out there uh, and you're aspiring to kind of learn from things that have been done well in the past and probably things that have not have been done less than great, you know, theirs is a completely different orientation towards, you know, creating one-stop shopping for, you know, gaming and competitive gaming content. It's a rock star team. So we're rooting for them. Again, for us, you know, the more it's, it, people ask it all the time, like, what do you think about, you know, what Caffeine is trying to do? We would love for there to be more competition for Twitch and for YouTube. We want Mixer to prevail. We want Facebook to prevail. We want Snap to prevail. We want Caffeine to prevail. All that means is there's more outlets. You know, back in the day, if you, you talk to folks, you know, in the television or cable industry, it was the more buyers who enter the fray, the better it is for market tension. Then all of a sudden you had streamers, right? right? So, you know. Didn't want them entering because that's going to mess everything up. Kara Scharf asks what you think, is there a future for non-competitive games? And I don't know if it is actually right to call it a game if it's not competitive i mean it's an experience it's a sharing thing it's a whole bunch of stuff is that is that like games are the things you keep score on isn't that a good basic definition of a game 
throwing that out there. Yeah, I think you could gamify, you know, edutainment, right? I mean, I think yeah. one of the things that, that we're seeing, kind of the four sectors, you know, that have absolutely exploded during this pandemic, um, you've obviously got streamers, you've got online education, gaming, and then there's adult entertainment, which isn't investable in from our orientation. But I think in online education, you're going to see a tremendous amount of innovation now. Like, oh, wow, okay, this actually worked. People ironed out a lot of kinks in what the product offering. Um, it, my son's next door. He goes 8 to 3 p.m. You know, he's, he's on Zoom taking classes. That inevitably will end up being a much more dynamic effort. So will there be gamification of some of that? Sure. Edutainment over the years, there's been pockets of success. You know, I think, you know, Disney had a, a, a nice business for a while, licensing that business out. So I do think some of what has happened in the world will lead to other verticals in gaming and gamification, in particular, as you see some of the streamers sticking their toe into the water too. You know, Netflix has some interactive programming up there now. If people are paying a 20 or $30 monthly fee, they would A, like kids content, B, if on top of that, you can provide them with some games content, all the better. And they're not subject to all that COPA compliance, or at least the same degree of COPA compliance, you know, that you would be traditionally through a traditional broadcaster. So it's less marketing driven. So you're a little protected. Is that the basic thing? Correct. Okay. It's not ad driven. Let's see what we got here. Uh, oh, Phil Elliveld, one of your USC semi-colleagues. He's over at the film school in the Entertainment Technology Center. Phil lobs in a question saying, how soon after social distancing do you see biathlete sports launch? People that play the same sport in the real and virtual worlds. I mean, I think that's almost like uh, the guy who can play offense and defense for the USC Trojans. There's not very many of them. So what do you, what's your thought? That would be amazing. If First of all, it would be a great narrative. I think, again, you're going to see like the, the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, right, where you get Bill Murray up there, right, and you get Michael Jordan up there, you know, amongst some of the best golfers in the world. I think Fortnite's already established that bar where, you know, right. at their world championships, they had the best streamers and gamers in the world playing with rappers and NBA stars and all those guys. Yeah. I mean, like the pro, actually, you think about it, like the pro am over at Pebble Beach would have not just uh, Bill Murray, but it would have people like Charles Barkley, noted for his horrendous golf swing. But Charles Barkley, who's, you know, a Hall of Fame NBA player playing golf. And now we're going to have Steph Curry, who's going to be in the Hall of Fame, apparently wants to get his PGA card. How many of those guys are going to be able to play video games too? That's what I, that's going to be really entertaining to watch. So, but I, I think, you know, it's, it's something we've always known. These teams take their consoles with them on the road. The cultures are very enmeshed. They're enamored with one, you know, it's again, like the adage used to be, you know, every actor wants to be an athlete and every athlete wants to be an actor. And uh, every singer wants to be an actor and every, you know, uh, actor wants to be a singer. And so, right. Gaming has now reached that level in particular, what, you know, Drake was able to do with Fortnite. So I, I think there's a lot of fun to be had there, whether or not someone actually crosses over as, you know, I'm the premier draft pick, you know, wide receiver for the Trojans. I also happen to be, you know, top 10 in the world at Madden football. Juju, Juju Smith-Schuster, fantastic receiver, played for the Trojans, plays for Pittsburgh Steelers now, and he's a serious gamer. I mean, I don't, I think he's one of the best ones on his team from all, by all accounts, and he's a big personality who's broken through and, selling merchandise and all that. So people like that, I think, are going to be really interesting to watch. You are going to be 
maybe they're not going to be at the level of the team liquids in terms of their ability, but they can be competitive. They can be in the game and in a, in a 100 versus, uh, versus one, really almost anybody has sort of a shot, so to speak. Uh, yeah, they're bringing audience to the conversation, right? They have an, an inherent yeah. you know, network that they're, they're bringing yeah. in. You look at guys like Lil Yachty and Offset who are uh, doing things with FaZe and some of these other guys. Uh, you know, they've got a – they're in the music space and they play games and et cetera, et cetera. It's really, I think, a fascinating smear here of, of uh, subcultures going on. And I think music, more than anything, you're going to continue to see more and more innovation there where you're going to see talent want to uh, be within these gaming environments – and have even a more interactive relationship. So it's not just a passive one-way communication. Right. So you're starting to see some really interesting innovation there. You know, that's an area that, that we're spending a lot of time looking at. And then again, I think baking some of these personalities as, as you're referencing into these gaming experiences, you know, at these competitions, whether they're virtual competitions or hopefully in the not too distant future in person. Uh, real quickly, uh, Laura, can we put up the poll results? So we got a couple minutes left here the games you're playing most or hearing the most about during this shelter at home period animal crossing by a nose over wow. Warzone, call of duty Warzone. it's about a quarter each but slightly more slightly bigger part of the quarter for animal crossing fortnite roblox minecraft and other others another one there's certainly plenty out there that are beyond uh, how long do you think it will be before esports teams will be able to hold live tournaments with fans actually present first half of next year which is probably to my mind pretty close to it 43 percent are putting their, their money there another 13 percent about one in seven of you actually one in eight of you think it's not going to be till the second half of 2021 or and a couple thought never it'll never be the way it previously was as you say though peter if anybody's set up to survive in that setting it's definitely going to be the esports guys because they're they start from that space and walk back to live events really Sports leagues such as the NBA, FIFA, and, and others are holding esports tournaments. Is this the kind of tournament likely to continue? Yes, it'll be another way to connect to fans and promote the sport. 42% think that's the thing. It's going to be happening. And another 40% think, eh, it'll work for some. It's not going to make so much sense uh, for the golfers, maybe. <laughs> so we'll see how that plays out, yeah, literally. And what upcoming platform are you most interested in buying slash using? The PS5. From Sony is the winner with 45%. This is interesting to me that, you know, Xbox really uh, whiffed on the launch of the last generation of platforms and fought back to some, you know, making some strides with this, the Xbox One. But I don't think they're really getting a lot of heat. I mean, the PlayStation 5 is continuing to get a lot of conversation. So is, to some extent, uh, people wanting to keep using their, their PC with a, a new a new graphics card. Uh, any thoughts about the PlayStation 5, I mean, the console wars in this generation? I mean, we're talking about we're not going to need consoles anymore. Any thoughts about but any think, of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think Microsoft has been the quiet killer in, in, mm. in their game strategy, um, and they don't get enough credit for it. So leveraging that Azure backbone, you know, them ramping up uh, for cloud gaming, They've got, you know, the xCloud is going to be an absolute beast. They've got a decade of a head start with that Azure backbone that they're able to tap into. They've been quietly buying up studios for the last two years. And great studios, you know, left of center, edgy content. So I, I think they're, they may not win this next round of the console war. I think PlayStation has been brilliant. 
um, in what, and by the way, you talk about, you know, dramatic pivot because two consoles ago, you know, they were lagging and it was incredibly difficult to socialize or to, you know, to, to find people on their platform to communicate with, to transact. And they've come such a long way, PlayStation. So I give them credit, but in terms of where we're going to be seeing around that corner, I actually think Microsoft doesn't get enough credit for what they've done over the last 18 to 24 months. And to their credit, they've been somewhat quiet about it. You know, as Google's kind of laid down Stadia, right? And Apple threw their hat into the ring with Arcade. I think it's really, you know, Microsoft with, uh, again, that Azure Backbone and xCloud and, and Amazon uh, with their resources. There's like eight to 10 new actors that have entered the theater in the game space. Right, right. It's going to be fantastic for everything we're talking about. For a vehicle like ours, it right. couldn't be better, right? Because the investment over the next decade in the form of market growth versus ROI is going to be significant. All right. That's a really great place, I think, for us to wrap this up. I'm David Bloom. You can reach me on LinkedIn at David L. Bloom and Twitter at David Bloom. Peter, where can you be found? And then we'll go to Ned to, to send us on our way. Peter, yeah. where, you, where can they find you? Fortunately, right now, just because we haven't had our final close, I'm going to keep it a little low pro. So I want okay. to thank you all for your time and, and uh, great session, David. Appreciate it. Ned, thank you as always. And that's my show. Thanks so much. I appreciate uh, you listening in. That was my conversation with Peter Y. Levin of Griffin Gaming Partners. You can find him on LinkedIn and other places. So he, as he said in the conversation, he's keeping his head down a little bit because they're still closing out their fund for regulatory issues. He's not doing a whole lot of promotion right now. But what they're doing, I think, is fascinating. And he's already had the success of the Hypixel Studio sale. So that's a that's a good win for them. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you enjoy it, please rate, review, share, and subscribe. It makes a big difference in uh, telling the magic algorithm machine which, uh, which shows it should highlight for everybody else. If you really like my show, go to anchor.fm, which syndicates and hosts my show. And you can chip in a few bucks into the magic uh, media machine, of which this is a key part and to help it all keep rolling merrily along so I could bring you more good stuff. Also, if you'd like, at anchor.fm, they enable the possibility of audio comments. I'd love to hear what you think about the metaverse, about the possibilities, about who's doing well now and how far off it might be. Leave a message, and I'll try to work it into a future show. You can also reach me on LinkedIn at David L. Bloom, and you can reach me on Twitter at David Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, and uh, please leave a note there. Connect there. I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, please take care of yourself. Stay safe and sane. This is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom and Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone. 